calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. Hello, darling. Hello. So our lovely listeners may have noticed that it is still March. It's still March. And you and I said that we were going to focus exclusively on first wave feminism issues for our episodes for Women's History Month. However, we didn't it realize went on too long. <laughs> that there were five weeks. And I think that we together collectively just said, you know what? Fuck that. Um, to the idea of doing yeah. another first wave feminism episode. <laughs> well, yeah. And I was I was looking through our options and I was like, unless they want to essentially hear us repeat a lot of the things that we've been saying for the last four weeks, there's really not much more we could talk about. I was like, we could talk about Seneca Falls more specifically or things like that. But I was like, you know what? And especially with everything going on in the news and in the state of the world right now, you know, you had discussed last week how we really want to talk about the uh, model minority myth. So we decided that now would be the best time to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, no time like the present. And it just felt like if this is something that's weighing heavy on our hearts and minds, and it is something that is topical right now, that it is something that we should just go ahead and cover right now. Why why put it off for another week? Um, so my notes are really it's the model minority myth and what that is and everything but it's also so closely tied with anti-asian hate and Mm -hmm. kind of the history of that in this country i really feel like it's impossible to talk about one without talking about the other well yeah because there's a reason for this model minority myth and how it's been perpetuated you know so i think that there is no way for us to talk about Um, something that's been perceived as being positive without Uh really discussing the historical negatives that come with it and present negatives. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, all of this stuff has repercussions um, that we are seeing to this day. And I think largely because of the model minority myth, it's the reason why a lot of this anti-Asian hate and violence has been able to operate kind of in the shadows 
even though it's kind of been right out in the open, like in plain sight, hidden in plain sight for so long because of the perceived proximity to whiteness um, and and all of that stuff. So I do want to say right off the top, I my three sources are a time.com article, a npr.org article, uh, and and I highly recommend this. I posted it to my Facebook. I will also post it to the Facebook group uh, page, our, our Facebook group page. Um, but the Try Guys put out a YouTube video, essentially. Um, uh-huh. And Eugene of the Try Guys. Let me see. What's his last name? Hold on. Don't know it anymore. I used to watch those videos a lot. Oh, I love I love the Try Guys. I love Eugene. Um, his name is Eugene Lee Yang. Okay. Uh, he kind of hosted this thing, but it is so well done. They talk to so many Asian American activists uh, as well as other activists and kind of d- they also have a whole section where they discuss the intersection between Asian activism and black activism. Uh, which I think would also be a very interesting episode on its own for us. Yeah. To uh, yes. Because when looking up, you know, if you go on the Wikipedia page of Model Minority, um, there is some discussion of other groups and how it's, you know, mm-hmm. evolved and changed and things like that, which I think is definitely really interesting. I found um, a uh, really I just, great. Hold on. I, oh, I wanted sorry. To yes. give the, I just wanted yeah, to give sorry. the title of that um, of that YouTube video so the title of that youtube video is we need to talk about anti-asian hate so you can go either go to the try guys youtube channel page or um you can you know type that into youtube and that video should pop up but it is so good like i know that people who are familiar with try guys it's not what you're thinking it's not it doesn't feel they like do a one lot of, those. of they do a lot of really kind of deep stuff every once in a while I feel like those are the ones that I tend to watch the most often because they'll pop up on my my homepage where they will kind of dive into some more serious stuff and I feel like Eugene in particular has had a lot of really great episodes that focused you know a lot about like his sexual identity and things like that oh yeah um, mm-hmm. so no they definitely I think they're a good example of you know a group of guys that are willing to be able to have fun together but also willing to try new things, be supportive, and to have difficult discussions together, which I think is wonderful. Right, and I love that they let, they really let, even though it's on the Try Guys channel, they really let Eugene completely take the lead. I don't think the other guys are even in it at all. From what Yeah, I well, and that, so. and that makes sense, and the fact that they're able to accept that and understand why that should be, I think is a really, is a great thing as an ally when the other four dudes are white. You know, yeah. so it's for, good yeah, that they were that yeah. they were able to give that space to him. I was going to say that I got a lot of information from it looks like a photocopy of a book that I found online. And it's I got it from the departments of Washington.edu, but it's not giving me an author, a title or anything. It's probably um, some I kind got, of like a journal. <laughs> yeah, know? it's it is. It's yeah. some sort of like college you know, paper or journal or something. Um, So it was really, really helpful, though. It was a bit older. So it was kind of fun to look back at, you know, where it talks um, a lot about the history and things like that. And then, of course, gotta love Wikipedia. I also read that Time article, a couple NBC, CBS News, different things like that. Yeah. And I want to I also want to shout out the Time article because I got so much great information uh, about this subject from that time article and it is called 
It's a long title, but it's called Asian Americans are still caught in the trap of the model minority stereotype, and it creates inequality for all. And that's by Viet Tan Nguyen. Um, he is incredible. He's a fantastic writer uh, and educator, you know, just yeah, it, it was it was so insightful and so heartfelt and I, I'll put it in the show notes but it was written shortly after the murder of George Floyd and it basically talks about how the model minority myth not only hurts the Asian American community but it's also was created and we'll talk about this later but was created to cause a rift and a divide between the AAPI community and black and brown communities. Um, And in a land that's so deeply rooted in white supremacy, being considered the quote, good kind of minority can be a tempting prospect for people. And with that comes a sense of safety and security. And no matter how badly you are treated, at least your white neighbors still think that you're better than quote, like the problematic you know, other right. minorities. Minority or, yeah. Right. But in this, you know, as we're, we'll discuss and dissect, like with this mentality, the problem with it is that when white supremacy wins, everybody else loses. It doesn't really matter what your perceived proximity to whiteness is. It, it has not protected Asian Americans from racism, discrimination, or violence at the hands of white supremacy. So, yeah. it, you know, that's kind of where we're coming from. Definitely. So where should we start on this journey? How far back do you want to go? Well, um, the first thing that I want to say before we we start diving into the history is that Asian people and Asian Americans are not a monolith. I feel like we have a very specific idea of what we think of as Asian American or Asian people, you know, and for us in the United States, I think we often think about like the East Asian people. And in other countries, like I know a lot of times whenever you're in like Britain, when they talk about Asian, they're talking about Pakistani or Indian people. It's all of that. Um, The most commonly used definition of Asian American is the U.S. Census Bureau definition, which includes all people with origins in the Far East, Southeast Asia and the Indian subcontinent. So this includes Cambodia, China, India, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, the Philippines, Pakistan, Thailand and Vietnam. So this is like... Some of the most densely populated areas in the whole world. You know, it's a lot. And also incredibly diverse. So the fact that, you know, it's all lumped in together is is interesting because all of these different um, all these different places are so vastly different Different. from one another. Yeah, culturally, you know, like Anthony, um, my fiance is half Filipino Mm -hmm. and having spent a lot of time with his family, Filipino culture is I mean, his last name is Marquez. Their family's last name is Santiago. There's a lot of um, Spanish and Portuguese influence. It is very, very, very different than, say, Korean culture. Like, it's very different. You know, so um, when we think about this, it's not what we see a lot and what we're going to see throughout the history here is people automatically assuming and jokes were made when I was in school about like, are you Chinese or are you Japanese? Yes. You know what I mean? And it kind of being like one or the other while yeah. you're discarding all of these other very unique specific cultures. And that in itself yes. is a microaggression that, you know, Asian Americans, Asian people have to live with and deal totally. with. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, it's fascinating to me as well, just the different locations within the U.S. where different countries 
from Asia have kind of settled. Like we have a very, very, very large Hmong population in Minnesota, particularly mm-hmm. in St. Mm-hmm. Paul. So if you were of the Asian descent, in, in like at my high school, most likely you were Hmong. That was a large right. population mm-hmm. where we're from. So I find it, you know, it is interesting how, but I guess if you think about it, that's kind of how a lot of races are. They're clumped together, even though there are so many vast differences oh, sure. between sure. countries I feel like and things like that. A lot of people do that here in Los Angeles, where we have such a large Latinx community, yes. where everybody assumes that if you're in the Latinx community, that you must be Mexican. And uh-huh. that's absolutely not the, the truth. I mean, and all of these different cultures, while they might be close in proximity to one another, they have very distinct traditions and cultures um, that they're proud of and that, yeah. and that keep them separate. But as we see a lot of times with Latinx discrimination here in where we live, you know, I'm just talking because we're from Los Angeles, where I know that there is violence that happens to Latinx people because people think they're Mexican. Right. (laughs) And they might not be, but it doesn't matter just because they're brown and they speak Spanish. Um, The same thing happens within Asian American circles where we we saw it happen throughout, we are still seeing it happen throughout the pandemic where people are being um, racially discriminated against or there is violence being done to people because they assume they're Chinese. Yes. And they're and one, they're not, and two, even if they are, right. it has nothing to do Hurting uh, hurting a Chinese person is not going to make the pandemic go away. You know, the, the thought process right. behind any of that it, doesn't make yes. any and you wouldn't you wouldn't get mad at somebody for getting cancer. You wouldn't get mad at you know what I mean? Like I feel like when there's an illness involved, placing the blame on a group of people doesn't make any well, sense <laughs> and very oftentimes i mean we see these kind of illnesses happen all the time or not all the time to this degree right of course this is like a once in a lifetime worldwide right. pandemic but right. we see these kinds of illnesses happen and the place of origin is not always named or at fault very often there is a trend that happens when it is um in Asian culture or community or oftentimes in African culture or community right. uh, where that area is blamed. And yes. it, it happens over and over. I have examples in my notes of times when it's happened um, with Asian communities, specifically Asian American communities. So yeah. do you want to start at the um, Chinese migration to the U.S. in the 1880s or do you have something before that? No, let's start there. Okay. So in the 1880s, the U.S. basically opened up its gates for thousands of Chinese workers to come on over uh, because they were essentially exploiting them for their labor in order to build the transcontinental railroad. Um, When their usefulness was over, American politicians, journalists, and business leaders demonized them racially to appease white workers because... White workers, just like we see today, um, felt threatened by the fact that these quote-unquote foreigners came over and stole their jobs, and there was competition for their jobs. Again, everybody just kind of like a basic note, other 
working class poor people are not your enemy. If you yeah. want to go after anybody, go after the corporations who decide to hire people because they can exploit them for their labor and pay them less money. Eat it's the rich. their fault. Eat yeah, the rich. Hashtag eat the rich. <laughs> that you don't have a job. It's not exactly. the person who is also trying to work to feed their family. But as a but result of this, you know, with that it was, systemic racism, that absolutely. is, I think, you know, far too easy for angry white people to rely upon, you know, right. to and it was blame a easy. person rather than their situation, you know? Yeah. And it was easy for politicians and journalists and the people who own these businesses and corporations to feed into that as well, because it's always a deflection um, from them, you know? And so you can look at, and I'm debating, they show a lot of these ads in that YouTube video, so you can see it there. I'm debating whether or not I want to include them with our Instagram post or not. Um, but there was so much xenophobic anti-Chinese propaganda that was spread around that is horrifying to look yeah. at. Like it is so racist that it is painful to look at. And as a result, white mobs began lynching Chinese migrants, um, driving them en masse out of towns on October 31st. 1880, a violent mob gathered in Denver's Chinatown and attacked every Chinese person and business in sight, trying to run them out of town. This led to one death. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it was just a consistent theme that you saw. And this anti-Chinese feeling just kept growing and growing and growing, eventually resulting in the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Yes, so the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act was the first racially discriminatory immigration law in American history. So I know that that seems kind of wild because this is post the Civil War and we've had slavery in this country and and all of those things. But as far as immigration law in in the United States goes, this was the first racially discriminatory immigration law. And it would turn the Chinese who were entering the United States into the nation's first illegal immigrant population because it basically said that they were not allowed to come to this country. The only yeah. way I believe, and I could be wrong about this because I didn't write it down, but I think I read the only way that they could come to the country was if they had a f direct family member who was already here working. Yes, it was. I believe it was their priorities to what I read. It was like it was a priority to bring families together, whatever. But it was also a priority, like you said, to bring workers into the country and things but like that. But that led to a whole other mess of racist rhetoric because, uh -huh. again, just like we see today, there were a lot of white people in the country who would say that, you know, these Chinese people were lying about having a relative working here and that they were still breaking the law to come here illegally. And so right. it, it, it really, it was just horrific. And in 1885, three years later in Seattle, um, anti-Asian sentiment, specifically anti-Chinese sentiment, led to four months of riots and drove the majority of the Chinese population from the city. Later that same year in Wyoming, white workers massacred 28 Chinese coal miners. Mm. Um, it was just rampant, especially most of these people were living in the West, Western United States. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, it was just everywhere. It's yeah. just so devastating and sad. Throughout the 1870s and 1880s, 
over 150 anti-Asian riots spread throughout the United States. So in a 10-year span, there were about 150 documented that we know of uh, anti-Asian riots. And again, most of those were directed at the Chinese population. But again, there wasn't a lot of distinguishing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think many were asking what their ethnicity was, particularly before they were going through with these violent acts. So... You know, again, the AAPI community was, all of them were in danger at this time. Yeah, and this is kind of where we start to initially see some of the more disgusting propaganda in terms of talking about cleanliness. Uh, And so it became easy to blame them for outbreaks of things. In 1900, a bubonic plague broke out in Honolulu. In response, the Board of Health set fire to 41 buildings in China, in the city's Chinatown and forced the residents into quarantine camps. In 1906, in Santa Ana, California, the city council, citing a Chinese man who had allegedly contracted leprosy, made the decision to burn down the city's Chinatown, the entire Ugh. Chinatown. And so you Disgusting. start seeing this pattern of right. like, if they can, if there's an illness that they can blame on the Asian population, they they're will treat it horribly. And they're treated horribly. Right. You mm-hmm. know, um, I was reading a bit about the Page Act of 1875, which was a very sexist law as well so this was pro or this was enacted to prohibit women coming to the united states from anywhere for quote immoral purposes and the law was largely focused against chinese women that uh, you know there was an idea that the chinese women that were going to be coming into the u.s were sex workers and Mm -hmm. they wanted to prevent that from happening so they created this law that essentially would kind of put a target on Chinese women's backs in particular for them not to be allowed into the country. And then when they were, you know, we'll talk more about the the harmful ways that the uh, minority, the model minority myth has hurt Asian women in particular as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. There are a lot of like, you know, as always, intersections add more and more to the mm-hmm. problem. So let's yeah. keep talking about it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I didn't really go on much of a deep dive into that aspect of it. But of course, I mean, even if you watch shows like Deadwood, which while a very well put together show, it's an HBO show, uh, hard to watch because I haven't seen it. I don't even know what it's about. No idea. It's about uh, the town of Deadwood. It's like a Western. It's a Western, basically. Okay. Um, but there is so much sexual violence uh, and like yeah. just rampant sexism. But because it takes place in the old west, there is an element of you know the, the Chinese population that existed. Yes. There. So, um, but there, uh, you know, there was a long-standing history of like particularly American service members who would travel overseas mm-hmm. during different wars. You know, after the Spanish-American War, uh, you know, sex trafficking and brothel owners. I mean, people in the Philippines were buying and selling women oh, yeah. and girls mm-hmm. to meet the demands. Of U.S. soldiers, and then there's um, comfort women in yes, Japan as well. Exactly, yeah. and then Quote, so unquote, comfort women. Yes. Exactly, and there was a lot of sex trafficking happening between, you know, Asian countries and the United States with these soldiers. So that the this stereotype, you know, I talk a little bit later about like the dragon lady stereotype and things like that, mm-hmm. has been incredibly harmful 
for Asian women because they have all been kind of uh, lumped together as being, you know, submissive or compliant and things like that, or to be hypersexualized. Right. It's it's obviously that's not the case. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's either you're this like very demure, submissive woman, or you are this hypersexualized, quote unquote, dragon lady. Yeah, Um, but I I feel like that's I feel like that's intertwined a lot with Asian women, where I feel like. Uh, there's an expectation for them to be both the innocent submissive, but to also be hypersexual in the bedroom or to, you know what I mean? I think from just mm-hmm. things that I've heard and read, it seems like that's part oh, yeah. of the, the appeal mm-hmm. to these people that right. buy I into mean, this and, harmful stereotype. And this trope, I mean, it comes from basically this like that's why i wanted to to highlight like deadwood like yeah. what you said with with that very you know misogynistic racist law is that from essentially the beginning of immigration to this country there has been this sexualizing of asian women basically from the jump and yeah. it, it exists to this day uh and as we'll talk about later it doesn't seem to matter how long somebody has been in this country, um, they are always othered and they're yeah. always kind of forced to or expected to adhere to those stereotypes. Like, yes. n- no matter how Americanized they become. Yeah. Uh, which is really sad and hard. And it I, is. I'm and I think disappointed in myself that I haven't spent more time really examining this definitely and i i think that there's also just a lot of um i know for me there's a lot of just things that i've heard about you know the culture the family the work ethic you know there are a lot of things that are tied together with asian families Um, i know a lot of friends that have you know have made jokes that are asian you know, friends of mine that have said, you know, uh-huh. the parents have always been really hard on me or, you know, all of these things. Quote, unquote, so I, tiger parents. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think that they're, you know, while culturally some of those things can be true, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's true for every single person who identifies as being well, Asian American. You know what I mean? Even if, even if those things are true, when you're talking about minorities, you know, any minority community, any community, really, right. None of that stuff exists in a vacuum. And as we will see, like when talking about the model minority myth, like if those things exist and those kinds of pressures exist, it's because we set them up. It's it's because we set them up that way. And part of it might be cultural, um, just in just in general. um, But a lot of it is societal expectations of the United States on this particular minority group. You know, one hundred percent. And one of the things that. The, one of the reasons that they wanted, uh, you know, Chinese, Japanese people to come to the United States originally was because they were looking for scientists and scholars and people. They wanted to oh, bring yes. the, the best of the best into the United States. So I think that already having that expectation of only wanting the best of the best of a certain minority group yes. sets that up for failure for when for generations to come, you know, they're, right. they're expecting them to come and be scientists for getting that, you know, these are human beings who are going to have families and children and live on. You can't expect perfection from everybody. Right. And it hurts everyone. So let's talk a little bit about that. So, yeah, the Im- the Immigration Act of 1965 
this is how long it took, right? So yeah. we're talking about 18, what year was that? 1882 to 1965, okay? Ooh. So the Imi- the Immigration Act of 1965 finally removed race-specific restriction on immigrants, which led to a new migration of Asian immigrants coming to the United States. So you will see a lot of people will say that their family members came over uh, during that time. Anthony's father came over during that time. Um, that's it, it was a big kind of like second Asian migration wave into the United States. And a lot of new families were looking for a fresh start in the United States and they did not know about America's history of anti-Asian racism. So they didn't really know right. what they were stepping into. And... Um, because a lot it was interesting in that YouTube video where people were talking about their experiences or their parents experiences saying that their families were coming from these very unstable living conditions uh, often coming from war torn countries and because of societal customs in these communities these people were more prone to just keep quiet and not speak out about mistreatment just keep your head down work hard um, well yeah and there was just keep moving Yeah, I know that, you know, for people who have, you know, who are here as refugees or have come from, you know, communist countries during that time a lot. Yeah, they didn't want to ruffle any feathers. They wanted to come here and make a nice life for themselves and not not complain, I guess, when things aren't exactly how you Mm -hmm. I would feel the same way. You know, if I'm moving somewhere else, it's like, well, anything is better than where I was. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to ruffle any feathers. Yeah, it's fine. You know, but another thing, and this is kind of what you were saying, that the 1965 Immigration Act did was that it prioritized, quote, skilled workers. So it shifted uh, immigration from from an exclusionary quota system to a merit-based point system. So this meant that highly educated and upper-class Asian immigrants were the majority of who were allowed into the country. So we're talking about... It's just like the Titanic. Well, yeah, I mean, our country does this. Yes. But, But we're talking about lawyers, doctors, engineers, and this is what leads directly into the model minority myth. So yes. I want to say the the definition of the model minority myth on Wikipedia is a minority demographic whose members are perceived to achieve a higher degree of socioeconomic success than the population average, thus serving as a referent group to outgroups. So yes. a reference point for other minorities. And it was t- it was coined, this title was coined, in 1966 by a white sociologist yep. named William Peterson. <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to say really quick that the minor- the model minority has to do with work ethic, respect for elders, and high valuation on education when it comes to Asian American communities. And there was also an idea that Asian Americans were less politically interested or active. Mm-hmm. So this all were kind of, you know, I think seen as positive influences on our country that this sociologist used to I don't know. I don't I don't understand what his purpose was in I didn't read his this. paper. He he wrote a paper about this, which I, yes. I didn't read. But I imagine, I mean, we're talking about the mid to late sixties, right? So Well, and this is only talking- a year after the um what is it, the nineteen sixty five Immigration Act, right? This is a year later. Mm -hmm. So this is only one year after. Right. Whenever people have started to be. That huge influx. 
So it doesn't make any sense because it's an he, odd leap to make because only one specific type of people were allowed were in. allowed in. So, and the title of his article that he wrote is called Success Story, Japanese American Style. So okay, he's, but it, there was a success it's been story a year. because you because you only allowed in exactly. people of a certain socioeconomic <laughs> class. I mean, and we jumped right over, I should say, which we have an entire episode on Japanese internment camps. Yes. Go listen to that. We jumped right over that. Um, but that was another huge injustice that was done to Definitely. Um, Japanese Americans. And it is kind of an interesting thing to point out once again that um, while there was some internment of Germans and Italians during that time, it wasn't the same as what yeah. happened to Japanese Americans in World War II, where they were kind of just rounded up en masse without... And put into concentration camps, essentially. Uh, yeah, where, whereas, like, Germans and Italians, they were only kind of round up, rounded up and put into internment camps if there was some kind of suspicion that they for whatever reason, were involved, you know, but yeah, for but Japanese Americans, Harbor, no, right, no right, Asian for Japanese Americans, Americans are safe. and they just weren't considered American, even though right. like a lot of people who were put into these internment camps were born in the United States. So we well, jumped right over that. Yeah. And, and thinking about the, the model minority myth and what that means, you know, highly educated, you know, respects elders, all that kind of stuff. It takes away any sort of human qualities that the group has. So I feel like that's just, it's another way of dehumanizing in another way, almost like a positive way of dehumanizing somebody and making them lesser so that treating Mm -hmm. them that way, you've done the mental gymnastics in your mind to think that these people are other beings than ourselves, you know? Yeah, I actually loved, Eugene had a quote that I wrote down um, from that video where he said, think about how attributing someone's success to their race undercuts their accomplishments and their individuality. Definitely. And I was like, that's that's absolutely true. And so this myth, I mean, it really worked twofold, right? Yeah. It was It was meant, as you are saying, to kind of group everyone into one monolithic you know, horde of people Mm -hmm. who were expected to act um, a certain way. Yes. Uh, And it was also meant to pit one minority against each uh, the other, uh, against these quote-unquote problem minorities of black and brown people, specifically black people. You think of the year, but this is 1966 Mm -hmm. that this came out, so we are right in the middle of the civil rights movement. So I'm sure that... It just seems so manipulative to me. I don't know. Yes. I don't know if it yeah. was, but there is this sort of, you know, it's othering the black community even more by lifting up another minority group. But I don't really understand what they thought the benefit of that for the Asian population would be. I don't I don't think it was about a benefit to the Asian population. I think yeah. it was about a benefit to I think it's all white supremacy. I think it was a benefit to the white population. Was it like a pat um, on the back? Well, because I think what they could say to other minority populations was if they can thrive as minority immigrants, why can't you? Exactly. Like, why, so and and they actually show clips, you know, 
on Fox News to this day, basically saying that white privilege doesn't exist because look at the Asian population, like they're thriving. So it's not about white people. It's just about black and brown people being too lazy to to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and do this thing. It was used as a tool of white supremacy to dispel the idea of white privilege. Um, And, you know, they're, they're sitting there saying like, why is it that Asian Americans have the highest incomes of any household? Everyone else must not be working hard enough. Well, and there's more and there's more to all of that than people are aware. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like just hearing the hearing the broader statistics or hearing things like that gives you a certain idea uh, of thinking that this isn't such a bad label. You know what I mean? I think that that's where it gets really damaging. Of Um, course. I, I agree. I feel like it was meant what you said is like it's kind of a pat on the back where it was kind of meant to placate this group of people and say like don't you want to be close to where you know you're in a country that is a white supremacist country don't you want close proximity to us you don't want to be treated the way those people are treated so just stay here don't make a fuss don't be loud keep your head down Uh um and and you'll and you'll be treated well. well yeah right Right. But this trope, even though it claims to benefit the Asian community, it's never actually protected Asian people from anti-Asian it hasn't, hate and ever. I, and I feel like it also kind of divides the community so much, too, because there are people that there are people in the Asian community that believe that the model minority myth is a positive thing because it is positive accolades being shed upon the Asian community. And then there were some, you know, particularly during this time when all of this was first kind of coming out, there were some that were like, this is fine. What's the big deal? And there were some people that were like, no, this is a really big problem and saw it for what it was. But I can understand how it would be easier to almost kind of go along with the positive things that the white community is saying Mm -hmm. about you in order to keep your own safety. But when you're looking at it, you are not any better protected because of the model minority well, myth. All it takes is one thing, right? Yeah. It's like um I didn't write this down, but it's basically it's it's conditional. There's a word for it, but it's conditional acceptance basically. Yeah. We will accept you, we will treat you well so long as you play by the rules. The second that you don't play by the rules or the second that you or your community or basically because we've now decided that all Asian Americans are one giant community, as soon as any one of you or one group steps outside of line or does something that we disagree with, um, we will then have permission to treat you however you want because you're exactly. not one of us. You know, and there's, you're actually not one of us. You know? And there's also just like a lack of listening when there are real issues that are being brought up. So according to the Asian Americans Advancing Justice Los Angeles, they say the misperception that Asian Americans are doing fine on their own has serious policy implications. Politicians won't talk about our community's needs if they assume people don't require assistance. Right, right. And again, if we're talking about the fact that Asian Americans are not a monolith, right? So there is a lot of economic wealth, say, in the Japanese American community in the United States. But there are other Asian communities where that is not the case. Yeah, there is a lot of poverty. Let's talk about that a little bit. So 
when it comes to earnings and when it comes to education, those are two really big uh, pillars that are measured for the success of the Asian American community. So as of 2012, Asian Americans as a whole have obtained the highest educational attainment level and median household income of any racial and ethnic demographic in the country. But if you break that down and look a little bit more specifically at all of that, So first of all, Asian American families in the United States typically have larger households, making them appear to be doing better off financially than they may actually be. So if you're looking at the income of the Asian population, According to 2006 census data, when combined into one group, Asian Americans earn a greater household income than white people of $66,060 versus $53,910. So sorry, I was jumping around a little bit in my notes there, so I was kind of saying that out of order. So when you look at the amount of money that they are making, you have to understand that it's not just one person making all of that money for one entire household. Many times it's multiple people that are working under one roof that are getting that amount of money. It's not necessarily just one person creating that amount of income for themselves. And then also, like you said, not all Asian Americans are doing equally well. Uh, Immigrants from Cambodia have a per capita income of $10,215 per year, and 90% do not have a college degree. Right. So I think that that's another thing that we have to get out of our minds. We have to stop thinking about um, what is an extremely large population of very culturally diverse people as one group right um yeah i think that that's that's exceptionally important as well well. yeah and there are many asian americans that live below the poverty line their uninsured rates are very very high and again because of this understanding that you know they're self-sufficient you know making enough money when there are complaints being made it's misunderstood because of what's been so readily accepted by white america Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and as I said, this trope did not protect Asian people from anti-Asian hate. In 1979, Asian American racism spiked again after the Vietnam War. The KKK drove through, um, sorry, the KKK drove Vietnamese refugees and immigrants from a fishing village in Texas, set fire to their homes and boats, and hung a man um because of anger over the Vietnam War, again, doesn't really serve the purpose that you're trying. I was going to say, not, not, not their, their problem, fault. not their fault. Um, but it was in 1982 that we really saw a shift in the mindset. I mean, at this point, there were a lot of Asian American people who had been here now, who were not first generation, who were American born, um, maybe even second generation American born. And so the mentality did start to shift when a man named Vincent Chin was murdered. So let's talk a little bit about Vincent Chin and what happened. So he was a Chinese American Mm -hmm. immigrant who was out for his bachelor party one night in Highland Park, Michigan. And at this time, there was an auto workers crisis, quote unquote, in Detroit. U.S.-based auto companies were being set aside for Japanese companies, and many white auto workers were getting laid off, and they were resentful of this. 
So Chrysler plant supervisor Ronald Ebens and his stepson, who was a laid off auto worker, Michael Nitz, saw Chin. Mm-hmm. Of course. Saw him outside of a club where he was at um, for his bachelor party, and they assumed that he was of Japanese descent. So the two of them blamed him for the... Again, blamed him, one man, for the success of Japan's auto industry and spewed racial slurs as they... Um, and this is a trigger warning. I mean, really, this whole episode is a hard one to listen to, but they... Yeah, Triggers they everywhere. him to death with a baseball bat. And his last words were, it's not fair. And he was brain dead before the ambulance arrived. Ebens and Mm. Nitz were charged with second degree murder. But because the white judge was a prisoner of war, he basically decided that because Vincent was an Asian man and these white men who murdered him were responsible law abiding citizens, you know, up until the murder. Um, which reminds me very much of what they said about the man who did the shootings in Atlanta, you know, having a, he was having a bad day, you know, like, oh, they're, they're, yes. just, look, yeah. they're letting off steam because he was let off from his job, you know. Um, I, I mean, I've let off steam in a lot of different never ways. Never like this. Never. Yeah. Haven't killed anybody. The, the words that the judge actually said were, quote, these aren't the kind of men you send to jail. So, then who do you send to jail? Who they do you send a man to jail to death. other they than murderous beat a man assholes? To death. Yeah, I don't. So they disgusting. were ordered to pay a three thousand dollar fine and serve three years pro- probation with no jail time. So this lenient sentence led to a for what you know what we saw really was kind of the first very vocal outcry from Asian Americans. There were protests. Um, you know, this is kind of an interesting intersection between black civil rights and and Asian American civil rights where black leaders showed up immediately to be like, we'll help you organize. Yeah. Um, we'll help you get media attention for this because it's unacceptable. The president of the Detroit Chinese Welfare Council said it amounted to a, quote, $3,000 license to kill Chinese Americans. As a result, the case has been viewed as a critical turning point for Asian American civil rights engagement. And it was a rallying cry for stronger hate crime legislation. So Eugene in this video says, quote, Vincent Chin's story exposed that even though he was a member of this so-called model group, he was still an outsider and the promises of protection that came with attempted assimilation into white society was false. And I think that that is so perfectly put that like it white supremacy doesn't care. It doesn't matter. Like you can try and assimilate, you can try and do everything right. But if you don't look like these people, there is for as it's long as we let white happen. supremacy flourish, you are in danger. Like, that's just the way that it is, Definitely. you know. Definitely. And the thing that's frustrating is that the best way for there to be change is if there are lawmakers that are willing to make these changes. And I think because of this idea that Asian Americans are less politically active or have less political opinions or what have you, there have been very, very few um, top positions in leadership in, in 
American society. So I was looking at the Wikipedia page of the Asian American politicians, and it's shocking how fast you can scroll through Mm -hmm. that page Mm -hmm. to the end. There have only been six Asian governors, five in the state offices, including Kamala Harris, four Asian Americans in local office, and 30 in Congress. Mm -hmm. That's insane. That is those are unbelievably small numbers. And while there have been a number of AAPI presidential candidates through the year, but that number is only five, by the way, there has only been one major win, and that is, of course, Kamala Harris becoming the first black and Asian American major party candidate for vice president. But before that, there really haven't been any wins on any major political ticket. Right. You know, so in order for, like, there really is a need for empathy, I feel, for a lot of these laws to change. And if there aren't lawmakers that have experienced this, that Uh are able to speak up and say, look, we need to change some of these things, they're not being represented. They're not being heard. And clearly, the American population that is screaming for help is being unheard because they think they're self-sufficient, because they don't think it's as bad as, you know, everything that happened last summer Mm -hmm. when we were protesting Mm -hmm. for Black Lives Matter. There's this break in realizing that it's it's the same. It's still right, raci- right. racist. It's still it's, discriminatory. You know. And again, this is part of the this is part of the fallout from the model minority myth is that it created a lot of tension between Asian and Black communities. There's a lot of solidarity there. Yes, there's a lot of Asian and Black solidarity, but there is also a lot of tension. There's a lot of anti-Black stuff that happens because. White people have said you are so much yeah. better than this group better. for so long, you know, that it's mm-hmm. it's caused a lot of issues and tension um, between those groups that it makes it difficult to see the ways in which we need to show up for each other, you know, and it is so important that well, we show up for each other. I was going to say, other. and it shows, it, it shows the empathy of other minority groups to still be able to step up and want to help, even when I think that it would be very easy for, you know, the black population to maybe not want to be helpful because they perceive Asian Americans as having it so much better off. So the fact that they were still willing to recognize that this was a group that needed bigger numbers and right. help, mm-hmm. you know, I think I think that's an yeah. amazing thing. I mean, and Especially when white people weren't going to do shit. (laughs) And, you know, kind of what you were saying about there not being enough Asian American people in our government. I completely agree. It it was also an interesting thing to me that while Asian Americans are some of the most educated in our country by demographic, by that incredibly Uh large, um, you know, phrase. Yeah, scope. Scope that we look at it. Yeah. We know it's more nuanced than that. But as a whole, Asian Americans are more highly educated um, they have, quote unquote, better jobs. They make more money or whatever. Right, right. Asian Americans and especially Asian American women are the least likely group to be promoted to management, according to Harvard Business Review. And they refer to this as the bamboo ceiling, kind of like the glass ceiling. But it's just like something that oh. they can't break through. And so often, you know, what they attribute this to is that because of this model minority myth you are so expected to not be assertive to be very submissive to not voice your opinion and when you go against those stereotypes and that kind of like unconscious bias that exists um 
it yeah doesn't pan out well for you oftentimes you know so like it, it's just kind of an interesting thing to me like we want to say oh they're doing so well, well but and then, it is like, these things happen well and also you know a larger population of Asian Americans from what I read I don't know if this is 100% true but a lot of them work in service industries like beauty salons hospitality and restaurants particularly mm-hmm. Asian yeah. American women so those people are not making the same kind of money as your doctors your lawyers your uh, whatever these are people that are just working Americans yeah. like you and I that are working just regular jobs. So clumping them all into one, you know, successful idea doesn't doesn't make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense to me that that would somehow keep them from achieving success, even in those smaller, quote unquote, smaller jobs, reading like a managerial mm-hmm. title or something like that is that doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, you know. I also think something that we haven't touched on with this model minority myth and kind of the harmful effects of it is how it served to keep, I mean, I guess we did touch on it slightly, but how it served to keep Asian Americans from complaining, right? So yes, I took this quote from that Time article. It says, like many Asian Americans, I learned to feel a sense of shame over the things that supposedly made us foreign. Our food, our language, our haircuts, our fashion, our smell, our parents. What made these sentiments worse was that we told ourselves these were minor feelings. How could we have anything valid to feel or say about race when we, as a model minority, were supposedly accepted by American society? Mm. And... Mm-hmm. I, I really feel like that was calculated. I really feel like that was something that was yep. done on purpose um, to keep people from rising up or complaining or recognizing. It's to continue to other people yet still mm-hmm. placate them in some ways. Yeah. It's all very, I, I just wish, I, I don't know, the, the, the picking and choosing of how to treat certain races in this in this country, historically, looking back at some of these things that certain laws that were enacted. How do you I just don't understand it. the picking and choosing of it. Sorry, I was just going off in my head when you were talking about all this. It's like who decided think, what race was going to be I better than the other? You know what I mean? What it's I've just heard, <laughs> whether or not this is bullshit could very well be. Uh, but I think the thing that I hear most often is that people are, are tribal. Right. So. Why single, Mm -hmm. uh, other than the fact that Pearl Harbor was bombed, right? Why single out Japanese Americans when you also had in the Axis, Germany and Italy, right? And it's because these people look more like you. Like they are, they're European. They look more like you. And I'm not saying that, you know, Italians definitely faced discrimination. All immigrants faced discrimination in the United States. Right. But even between, like, the black and brown communities, like, who, the way that that was decided, like, when when more Chinese immigrants were coming to the United States, I'm just confused as to why they initially put out into the world that these people were better than the African immigrants, better than um, Mexican immigrants. Well, they, you know they what I mean? Initially. I guess to me, it's the, it's the reasoning for that but they hierarchy. Did it initially because we saw so much xenophobia and so much racism for early Chinese immigrants. Yeah. It was the fact that when we, you know, with the Immigration Act, when we 
allowed Asian Americans to start immigrating into this country that we only allowed a certain type of Asian American. And so that changed right. our perception of an entire group of people. And it has nothing. It, it appears that there was more, there was more regulation on the immigration of Asian American people or of Asian people than there was of other ethnicities. Right. Well, or I mean, it, it's very nuanced. Is kind also, of what I'm understanding. When you're talking about specifically african-americans or black americans because right you you can't literally have laws that say that these people aren't human beings which is what happened to african-americans black americans and say that they are property they are the equivalent of a farm animal to us um Mm -hmm. of course the way that's going the way that you treat them those mindsets don't change just because the Emancipation Proclamation right. happened and now they're free. You know, like those mindsets don't change. You don't automatically start thinking like, okay, well, I guess you're a person now to to people who didn't think that. You yeah, know? yeah. So it's going to change the hierarchy of where you believe people fall. You know, that will always affect that. Definitely. It will always affect that. It will always affect legislature. It will always affect... Um, you know, they like to cite these resources. I saw a lot of them about the percentage difference between performance of Asian Americans in school and African Americans in school and African Americans are drastically different, but there's so much that goes into that, you know? Yeah. Into why, you know, it, it is, I was reading about, uh, the different ways that teachers teach their Asian American students, um, you know, especially for students, who are Asian and have learning disabilities or struggle with school, uh, they're not as likely to receive help from their teachers. Their teachers are more likely to assume that they've got it, they've got it handled, they're fine. But then on the other hand, you know, you look at how other races are treated and there's a different set of expectations for different groups of people. You know what I mean? And those expectations hurt people in different ways. White supremacy hurts everyone. Like, that's just where it, it comes out at. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, you have to look at the difference in resources as well. Like, you, all of these things, it's so much more complicated than just numbers. And it's so frustrating when you see Fox News just post percentages because you have to understand, yeah. like, with the African-American community, you have redlining that kept African-Americans in certain communities. And then you had those communities being underfunded by the government, which led to not getting new school books or not being able to afford teachers or which of course led to um, education. It's all systemically set up. All of these things are interconnected. But the real point of, I think this episode is that while this society wants to tell you that the model minority is something that is positive for the Asian American community. It actually has not protected the Asian American community. And as we have seen, I took this quote out of the Time article as well, Asian Americans have not forgotten this anti-Asian history, and yet many have hoped that it was behind them. The slur of, quote, Chinese virus has revealed how fragile our exception and inclusion was because we have seen in the last year a massive spike in mm-hmm. in Asian American a hundred and fifty percent. Yes, the hate hate crimes against Asian Americans have gone up by a hundred and fifty percent in twenty twenty. That is unacceptable. 
That is, I it believe is completely I also read that um, AAPI people are more, most likely to be bullied in schools, in middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. So the perceived proximity to whiteness, the perceived assimilation, the safety, safety. of assimilation, those things don't actually protect you in the end. You know, and that's what we're seeing. And I think yep. that I feel ashamed that I haven't thought about this or read about it as much as I feel like I should have. Um, I'm grateful that I mm-hmm. had the opportunity to learn something and will continue to learn. Um, I know that <laughs> neither you or I or are, are part of the AAPI community. And so if we said anything wrong in this episode anything that was insensitive anything that you want to correct us on please let us know i'm absolutely open yeah of course to that yes and this is also such a huge topic i mean i there's so many different avenues that i went down and it would be you know it would be easy for us to talk for long periods of time about each of these little things in particular that go into this model minority label um, and how it affects, you know, everybody's lives so deeply. But yeah, I too, I definitely, it's something that I feel like growing up in the U.S. and being a white person, having those beliefs said to you repeatedly or having them be displayed to you it does start to change your mentality about a certain group of people. So having the violence in our faces right now, I think, unfortunately, is a really big reminder for people like myself who are not educated in the subject that it's time to do so. And that's why I thought it was really great that we were doing this episode. I do think it's important for us to be highlighting more of the Asian community. It's something that I feel like has just kind of fallen to the wayside and isn't talked about for exactly the same reasons that the Asian community mm-hmm. doesn't talk about it. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. They don't want anything to, well, to blow we up exactly as it has. It. And now it's to the point yeah. where we can't, yeah, but we right. can't ignore it anymore. That's the thing. And it sucks that it takes something like that to where, oh, now we can't ignore it. Right. That it makes me feel like, oh, now right. I have to do something yes. about it. Like, that sucks. I don't like, Agreed. I don't like feeling Agreed. that way. Agreed. You know, I, I am ashamed that it has taken this much for me to think like, maybe this is something that I actually need to take a cl- I mean, of course, like we believe in intersectionality. We know the levels of intersections, you know, and, and how that makes it more difficult to function in society. Um, yeah. And of course, we knew that racism... But it's racism, just not discussed Yeah, we knew that racism existed within these communities, but it is not yeah. discussed as much. It's definitely kept under, like swept under the rug. And I feel like when these hate crimes began to spike during the pandemic... Everyone, including myself, was kind of like, wow, that's so like wild that this is happening. When in reality, this country has such a long and shameful history of racism and violence against the Asian American community. So, um, yeah, just something for us to keep in mind and for us to continue to, um, keep in the forefront of our minds and um, definitely learn more about actively. And I hope everybody else who's listening does yeah. as well. 
I mean, the more the more education I have on these different things, the more I can check my own biases, yeah. the better person agree, I think agree. I'm going to be. So, yes, I'm glad that this is, I mean, it's something, this has been on our list, we say this a lot, since like the first year we've had this on the list. I've always been aware of what it was, uh, but never truly aware of its harmful effects, especially because on the surface, it appears to be something so positive. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Oh, my goodness. So please, if there is anything that we've left out, if there's any stories that you want to share, anything that you want to share with us, please email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us and follow us on Instagram at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can go and chat with the other listeners on the group page and then go and leave a review on the business page if you have not done so. And if you haven't left us a review on Apple Podcasts, we appreciate it so much when you do. Please do so. You will be featured on our Instagram for Reviews Day Tuesday. If I don't forget, this past Tuesday came and laughed and I didn't post. I think I posted something else instead of the review. So I will post the review this coming Tuesday. All right. That's all we have for you today. With all of that being said, we encourage you to, to rage on. on. Bye. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.